Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr Todd Fraser. The Rapid Response Team, or Medical Emergency Team as it's also known, has become a commonplace service in most hospitals. Despite passing the common sense test and the existence of some supportive pre- and post-implementation data, the only randomised trial in this area, MERIT, has failed to find an outcome benefit. Nonetheless, the rate of emergency calls seems to be escalating. In fact, it's been postulated that increasing the number of calls might actually improve the impact of the rapid response system. Dr John Santamaria is the Director of Intensive Care at Melbourne's St Vincent's Hospital and is the author of a recent study that explores the relationship between emergency call rates and the adjusted in-hospital mortality. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Firstly, before we get started, do you have any disclosures for the audience? No, I don't. The concept of a rapid response team is fairly familiar to most people now. Most hospitals would have something like that. But there is still this issue of evidence to support them given the resources that are required and the potential complications. What do we know about that at the moment? Certainly. The original work, probably dating back into the 1990s, were the before and after studies, if you remember, um, showing that when you put a team in that you could actually reduce in-hospital cardiac arrests and also probably improve hospital uh, survival. Uh, And then we came along to what was called that MERIT study that was uh, published in Lancet in the mid-2000s where we randomised hospitals to implement a rapid response service versus standard care. That was interesting in that the education for the hospital to put in one of these rapid response teams was approximately three months. And then uh, they looked at the outcomes of it was cardiac arrests, it was admission to ICU, and it was unexpected hospital mortality. And as people will remember, it was said to be a negative study in that they didn't achieve statistical significance But in fact, there were trends that these things were reduced. So it always interested us that we had had to change the culture of a hospital for nurses to call, for doctors to respond within a really short space of time and expect to see change to occur. So what we did here is that we continued that methodology for the merit study and we recalculated what happened to us every two years over the next roughly six years. And in a previous paper in the uh, critical care medicine, we sort of showed that it really takes about two years before you will actually cut down on cardiac arrests. And then it took us another two years after that in order to impact hospital mortality. And I think other things have been showing the same. You know, when, for example, when the ARDSnet paper came out saying we should use six mils per kilo tidal volume for ARDS, all the papers through the 2000s showed no one was doing it. And it really takes a long time for culture to change. And that's why I think partly why the merit study was a negative study, because we didn't have enough time to do it. So that was fine. So we felt that, yes, the rapid response teams were important. You would get an effect. And then, as time went by, the number of rapid response calls kept escalating. 
we were probably victims of our own success. And reports were coming out and saying, look, a mature hospital should really be doing at least 30 calls per 1,000 admissions, which was just becoming a little over the top. And the evidence for that wasn't, I didn't think, wasn't particularly good. And about three or four years ago, we were looking at the number of calls that were happening within the hospitals here in Victoria, because we have quite a lot of good evidence around that. And one of the hospitals was doing over 6,000 calls per year. And they really almost had to have like a, a dedicated team just to, to do it, which is unfunded because none of our rapid response teams are funded. They're just, you take people away out of intensive care to help do it. We do get assistance from medicine. That was one. And then the second thing I noticed happening was that one of the other very large hospitals in Australia, whenever they had a call, they would send a really big group of people. They'd send two intensive care doctors, two medical registrars and two surgical registrars because the number of contemporaneous calls were going up. And in fact, they were documenting that at times there were five simultaneous met call or rapid response calls happening. And it begin, began to worry me and think, well, what are we doing? So um, there was some suggestion that the more calls you did uh, uh, with time, that there was a reduction in mortality. So we did two things here. We were very lucky in that every admission or every discharge from hospital in our state of Victoria is actually logged with our health department and they actually send all that information back to the hospitals every year. It's known as the Victorian Admitted Episode Data Set or VAED and it's a very rich data set because it has up to 40 ICD-10 diagnostic codes and also 40, if you like, ICD-10 procedure codes plus um, de-identified information, but it's rich as regards uh, age, gender, type of admission and so yep. forth. And we have something of the order of, um, you know, 13 years of this information, so around about 13 million records that we could look at. And it's very apparent that with time, the actual mortality in our hospitals is gradually declining. And I suspect that this is just due to better care. We've got laparoscopic procedures, we've got new medications and things, and they're probably the factors that um, are doing some good. But you can also show that the number of rapid response calls are going up, and you can draw a really nice association mm. between hospital mortality going down and rapid response calls going up. But to actually say that that's cause and effect was, to me, really, you know, I thought the more likely thing is that care is improving. And yes, rapid response calls are important, but they're not the major driver. The other thing we noticed internally in our hospital, and we've also got a rich data set, our patient master index, or we call it our PAS, our patient master index goes back a long time, and it's even richer data set. It's still got all those diagnoses, but I know the units, I know longer-term outcome and so forth, and we were able to look at that as well. 
And when we looked at our rapid response calls, we were finding that more and more of those calls were for very minor things, that up to 25% of the calls were for people who were who had a valid not-for-resuscitation order or, or who weren't going to survive anyway, yet people were still being called to see them. So the nature of the calls was changing as well. So that's why we thought we would undertake the study. We would try and model hospital mortality based on uh, the Victorian data set and also based on our own hospital. We knew the number of rapid response calls for the major hospitals or for a group of the major hospitals in Victoria and we certainly knew the monthly calling rates, if you like, for our hospital here, and we matched those up to outcomes. And we were able to show that once you adjust for the severity of the condition, roughly, of the patient coming through the hospital here in Victoria, in the big hospitals in Victoria, but also for our institution here, and you included the calling rate that was happening in Victoria for the, each hospital for the year, but for our own hospital here, we could do the calling rate for the month in which the patient was discharged. We could not find any improvement in increasing calling rates. And in fact, the odds ratios were all above one. Um, I wouldn't like to say that more calling rates led to worse mortality, but the actual odds ratio was, on the, was not on the I'm doing benefit sort of side. People have described or used the analogy that RRT can be almost like a drug. There's a, a potentially an ideal dose. There's complications if you overuse it yeah. and so on. So what you're trying to find is, is there an, an association between the dose of RRT mm -hmm. and outcomes? Yeah. And you couldn't find any? No. I think implementation of an RRT has an effect which, if you like, is a jump or a, a decrease in mortality. But can you actually say that increasing the dose is going to lead to more effect over time? I don't think so. Oh, you, I think you get an impact by putting it in, but it doesn't change very much thereafter. So you referred to some of the complications or side effects of this drug called RRT. What sort of things yeah. does it lead to? Um, I suppose from my perspective... Um, it leads to re it, it's the impact on the places where people are going from. So in intensive care, all of a sudden, I don't have any senior staff looking after really sick patients. They've got to be going and treating. Now, maybe that's uh, a problem with my model. I know that there is literature around that if the internal medicine or general medicine ran a very similar service, then they get a similar improvement in outcome without involving intensive care. And maybe intensive care doesn't have to be the group who actually continues to run it. So that, that's one negative. Uh, look, another negative is, um, you know, we could be doing things to patients that are inappropriate. And maybe if the home team went and saw the patient, they would actually say, oh, we know this person really well. This would seem to be a more appropriate course of action. Uh, whereas uh, you know, now we've got to try and make decisions very, very quickly with very little information. And this is particularly after hours. So what is the scale of that impact on existing resources? You quote, uh, I think, a study done in Concord about its impact. What was the impact um, there? 
Yeah, so at the Concord Hospital they found that there were interrupted ward rounds, there were delays in being able to assess patients, they couldn't finish their clinical shifts, the staff had to go back and uh, do their work. So it really impacted upon how staff members were able uh, to, to work. And, and I suppose the other thing that's happening these days is we're all concerned about work-life balance and burnout and things, and if we're extending all the work that people are doing for no benefit, then maybe we're doing a disservice to our other team members. And just to put that in context, I think in the merit trial they had a dose rate, if you like, of 8.7 met calls per 1,000 discharges. Yeah. But what you found seems to suggest that's extended well beyond that now. Correct. If we go back to the merit study, we have to be a little careful because the actual cohort of patients that we were the the calling rate on, they weren't counting people in the hospital who had valid not for resuscitation orders, nor were the calls on people with NFR orders actually included in the analysis. Right. So we're looking at a smaller cohort of people, whereas the general calling rates are for all comers. People right. under palliative care, people, you know, and yeah. so forth, and people outside the hospital who, you know, have faints and things. So, it, it these numbers that we're talking about, like the thirty per one thousand, um, may not reflect the true group who are going to benefit. So, like all, uh, for want of a better expression, negative trials, mm -hmm. um, the inevitable. Um, next step is to try and identify whether there is a subgroup or some better way of quantifying the target group to get better effect out of the intervention. One of the original before and after studies showing benefit was from Michael Bust, who was an intensivist here in Melbourne, and uh, I think that paper was published in the British Medical Journal originally. And Michael, when he talked about it, he said a rapid response team or a MET service is a band-aid. It's actually putting a safety net under the patient until we can actually, you know, find a better solution. So what's the better solution? It's better observations. It's better interpretation of observations. So it's good to note on the chart that the saturation is only 70% for the last four hours, but did somebody do anything about it? Um, so it's, it's educating staff in order to sort of treat people before events actually occur, pick them up earlier. So I think, you know, if we said what's the next thing to come, I think it is educating people. So we, in a separate paper um, published last year, defined what we call MET syndrome. So when you go to the medical emergency call, you actually say, well, what was the diagnosis? We know we went up there because there was tachycardia, but the tachycardia was produced by atrial fibrillation. So you, the junior doctors who are going to see these patients, if you're called to see somebody, it's most likely atrial fibrillation or a supraventricular tachycardia, and here's the best way to treat it. You know, get on, maybe you need to do the electrolytes, potassium, magnesium, maybe this person is a, a digoxin or whatever. Give them some things to say. When you get called for these things that we're calling the rapid response teams for, these are the things you should do. So another calling criteria is hypotension. Most of the hypotension is due to low volume. So teach them, look, the first thing you've got to do is to give them some fluids. And I think that 
that's the thing we've got to teach people. Make so them it, comfortable with treating it. So a bit like the Swan-Gans catheter um, analogy, I suppose, that it's not necessarily the diagnostic tool but the intervention that comes after it that can that's potentially right. impact. Yeah. Um, the, what are the factors that are associated with the different um, dosing, as it were? Is it uh, You mentioned that uh, some of this is about patients who have got not for resuscitation yeah. orders and so on, but there must be other factors such as the sensitivity of the, the calling criteria and those types of things? Yes, it is. Um, yes, it is. I think I'm, I must admit a few years ago in, in order to... Um, cope with the workload, I did go through the wards and I said, please don't call us for the not-for-resuscitation patients. And, and in fact, we decreased the calling rate. We did not increase hospital mortality, unexpected hospital mortality at all. But then they changed the form and people could put not for resuscitation, but for rapid response teams. <laughs> that sort of thwarted me in a way. I think with calling, there are two ways to call. We in Australia would use like a single calling factor. So if you had a tachycardia, call us. If you have low blood pressure, prolonged seizures and so forth, so you could be called on a single thing. Yep. Whereas if you like in other ones, we have these early warning systems or MUSE and things they talk about and you actually in a way get points for things coming. And when your MUSE score gets to a certain level... Yep then a call is initiated. And and I'm not sure I know which is the better one. Certainly on the single calling, there's always a category for I feel uncomfortable with the patient. They're, I use the term NQR, they're not quite right and I think something's going to happen. It's not because their pulse, blood pressure, temperature or whatever is out, but they're not, I'll call them anyway. Yep. So it's, you know, that, that's quite a valid reason to call. You know, if you've got a really experienced clinician who says cold, clammy, something is going to happen, that's fine. But everybody uses that for, um, for other things. So, you know. So we've had a bit of scope creep, I guess, we in do. many ways. Scope yeah. creep and the patient's. And it's just a, a response. And the other thing that people on the wards I feel sorry for them is, but if they call the home team, where is the home team? So if it's a surgical ward, it could be the home team's in theatre. Everybody is scrubbed doing an operation and they really can't get there quickly. For an internal medicine, the physicians might be in outpatients and that might be in another building. So, you know, the easier thing for our ward staff to do is say, oh, look, I'll call a medical emergency call, I'll call the team, they'll come and deal with it and then they'll do the communication later on. Now, you mentioned the variation in the uh, calling criteria yeah. and, and the different styles of doing that, but there's also a lot of variation in the constituency of the, the teams too. Yes. Um, how... how broad is that variation and what impact does that have on being able to study its impact? That's right. Um, I, I refer people to quite an interesting paper that was um, the first author was Daryl Jones in the New England Journal of Medicine a couple of years ago. It was a review article looking at rapid response teams and they talked about all the different elements that we just don't know. You know, we, we know what you know, we know about calling criteria. We've just talked about that. We don't we haven't talked about the effector arm is what they, they say is who actually goes or who comprises. 
So in certain countries around the world, doctors are not part of a rapid response team. It might, I know, teams that have critical care nurses where they have um, respiratory therapists, which we don't have in Australia, they, they would go along and, and see. My issue with those type of teams is that you, haven't, you may not have a, a proper effect or arm. So if you've got a doctor on a team, they're able to do all the ordering and they've got probably a greater armamentarium of drugs and things that can actually be implemented. So in Australia, I think the majority of teams would have a doctor on, on as right. part of it, and I think that to me that is I'm more comfortable with that type of team. So the on a more philosophical level, I guess, mm-hmm. having digested all of this, there is clearly a level of apprehension, if not frustration, particularly on the ICU side, about the delivery of this service to the rest of the hospital where this is ultimately going to get to it's not uncommon to hear people talking about de-skilling of the wards and a frustration at early calling and unnecessary calling is this something that is sustainable in our system or is this something that we need to address more proactively i think there are a couple of things that we can think about when you say de-skilling yes i think that that can be a potential problem I think if a team goes to the ward, somebody once told me that um, you should look neat because you're representing the, you know, your, your unit, you've got to treat, but you should never leave a call without teaching something to the staff there. I think you should try and include, if, if the home team comes along, get them actively involved so you're actually training the staff on the ward, showing them what it is in a positive manner, not in a negative one, you shouldn't have called me or why didn't you put the oxygen on to say well look next time this is a better way to actually manage it I think that that's going to be crucial I think that there are other ways of alerting to somebody not doing so well so currently we're relying on a nurse or a passerby or somebody to recognize something is happening so you know nurse patient ratios here in Melbourne are what one in four or so during the day, one in eight or one in ten or twelve at night. How do you how do you do that? But as more and more things are rolled out, so uh, vital signs monitors attached to people recording things automatically. Person comes into hospital, there's already some information as soon as they hit hospital that this person is at risk. So, you know, you might have your 85-year-old chronic heart failure patient been in hospital four times this year but they're coming in to have the hernia repair and the surgeon says this is easy I'll get this done quickly yet you know that that's a really high risk patient so maybe using that information and the third thing is there's electronic medical records which might be a bit of a dirty word for some people but if we can actually use machine learning in order to go through all these vital signs, these previous histories, these records, um, we may be able to do a a pre-met alert before they ever hit the criteria that says this person needs their care managed. And about, I think it's about two years ago, 2016 maybe, there was a paper from Chicago, first author was Kang, uh, which actually showed that they could actually predict an event just by having 
the machine learning doing that. So I think there are areas where we can actually optimise the resources that we have so that we may not need to go to see people and we may have a more trained general hospital sort of staff dealing with these problems and we'll revert back to going and seeing the sicker people. That, that's my hope. There's a, a perception among non-ICU people, though, that uh, we've made our bed and we now need to lie in it. How would you respond to that? Well, the same thing. The, the, I think the concept for us in, in Australia is that patients coming into our hospitals, certainly our public hospitals, they don't belong to an individual. It's not ICU's responsibility. We're all here... Everybody is there for the patient, so we've all got to do our best and we've all got to have our skill levels up as much as possible. In a private setting where you've got a patient who does, if you like, belong, it's still the same concept. You've come into that environment, everybody is, is responsible for working for it. So it's not just one group who does it. Yes, we are there to look after the really sick people. We know how to do the ventilators and things that other people can't do. That's what we're specialists in. But the management of people who are tachypneic or who have hypoxia, that's the realm of every clinician in the hospital, is to be able to have some skill at at least starting a process and then asking for help. Well said. John Santamarita, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. You're welcome. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcasts, I'm Dr. Todd Fraser. Todd Fraser, MD, is an intensive care and retrieval medicine physician from the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia. He is a staff specialist at Nusa Hospital and is the founder of Osler Technology a clinical certification and training system. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.